brothers and sisters, and welcome back to an all-new Sermons in the Park. As always, I am your Reverend Jamie McCaskill. I want to take this time, like I do each and every week, just to say thank you for tuning in, for watching me over on YouTube or Rumble or BitChute, wherever you may be watching, or even listening here on the, the podcast. It's just, a, it's just always an honor to uh, know that you tune in and you listen or watch wherever you may t- listen or watch. Um, before we get started, let me just say, if you're uh, watching this on the day it's uploaded, Merry Christmas. It's uh, I hope you're all having a great and wonderful Christmas. I hope you're being safe out there because, as you know, uh, here in, in the north or, or here in the United States, we've been having these uh, winter storms sweeping across the nation, uh, freezing temperatures even in the southern United States, which is unusual. Uh, super, super cold here in the north. Um, I'm talking negative 32 degrees. It's been extremely cold. So I'm hoping you've all been real safe and uh, spending time with your families when you, if you're able to. Uh, so Merry Christmas. Um, now, let's take our time. Um, go ahead and bow our heads and thank our Heavenly Father for all the gifts that He's given us, including... The reason for the season, his son Jesus Christ, who came into the world uh, through the Virgin Mary and was the greatest gift we could have ever received. Heavenly Father, we come to you today on on Christmas, the day of your son Jesus' birth, just to say thank you. Thank you for sending him to... uh, to our world in human form, becoming a human yourself in him, and giving us the wonderful gift of forgiveness and of redemption. It was through your son Jesus that we were able to get this redemption, be able to have a closer relationship with you. And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the healings that you're bestowing upon people each and every day. We thank you for the breath that we take, every morning when we wake up the, the the taste of food that we're able to enjoy the, the, the water that you give us to quench our thirst each and every little thing that we can we can't even remember so I can't even think of some of the things you give us father because you're all you're, you're working so you're working on us like I say in a molecular level there's things that we don't even see that you're doing and you're making sure that we're able to walk and talk and breathe. It's all because of you. And we thank you for that. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, if you're tuning in today thinking, you know, we're gonna, you're going to get a different message. That we're going to, um, you're going to get a, a Christmas message. I just want to let you know that I've already done two. Both of those can be found over on the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, bit you to rumble. Just go over to the podcast. I've done two Christmas messages for this year um, and I did put them both up on the podcast um, here on Sundays the Sunday uh, edition if you will <laughs> of Sermons in the Park we only concentrate on what we're working on and we're currently doing Genesis right we're doing the book of Genesis and this week we're up to chapter 15 and here we are in chapter 15 and you know that we've been looking at Abram right who, who would later change his name, of course, to Abraham. 
which means the father of many nations. And last week we ended after he had rescued Lot. And he had been blessed by Melchizedek. This week we're continuing our reading of Genesis. And we are up to chapter 15. Where we also will be continuing the story of Abram. So let us just jump right in. Okay, let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 to 21. This is the entire book, the entire chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, this shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger to the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go thy father's in peace thou shalt be buried in a good old age but in a fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full and it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the, those pieces 
And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river the Euphrates, the Euphrates, I'm sorry, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Raphim, the Raphames, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Gergesites and the Jebusites. Now, what did we read in verse 1? Let's look at it again. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Do you notice how it starts off? And this is another one that shows, like I told you, that the books of the Bible were not originally split into chapters and verses. Just check it out. It says, after these things. This is, of course, talking about what we just read last week, isn't it? The battle of the kings, the captivity of Lot, the rescue of him you know, and his goods, and all the others of, of Sodom and Gomorrah by Abram. And, and also the conversation that passed between him and the king of Sodom and Salem. Then it says, The word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We just discussed this. Who is often called the word? The one who was born on Christmas. Christ. Who is the essential word we see here that he appeared to abram in human form he was visible to him and he was he also had an articulate voice didn't he it says that he spoke unto him that he said fear not abram he calls him by name he does this not not to just encourage abram no 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 he, he does it to to get rid of the fears that he might have. Remember that, that the nations all belonged to these four kings. And, and he conquered them. He might have feared that, that they would go out and, and recruit other people. And that they might come after him with, uh, with more men, right? And, and what of all the other family members of these people that he killed? I'm sure that, that he also feared that, that they might come after him. I remember when I was in school, um, I got into a fight with this guy, right? And uh, we got into this fight on the school bus, and uh, it was because, you know, he, he continuously bullied me. He would always be on the bus with his brother, right? And he would, like, flick me on the ears and stuff like that. And when I got back from being, because we got into this fight, you know, we, we all, we both got suspended. And when I got back, I was, I was afraid, right? I was afraid that his brother would, would retaliate. But he didn't. In fact, he made it clear to me that, hey, man, you did the right thing. But still, that was one person. And they were alive. So... I can only imagine the fear that Abram might have felt. 
But, but look what the word says to him. It says, I am thy shield. He makes sure that Abram understands that he's going to, be, he's going to protect him. No matter how strong and how, how many people were going to come against him. And this reminds me of how Christ is our shield against our spiritual enemies. Against sin, against Satan, and of course against the world. This is what we call the shield of faith, right? It is security against our enemies. And he tells Abram, I am thy shield. You see, God is Abram's divine protector. Let's take a look at Psalms chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, let me go over there and grab my, uh, my, my uh, phone. One second. just have to use the Bible. I can't find it. Psalms chapter 7, verse 10. Sorry about that. I couldn't find my, uh, my phone. Psalms chapter 7, verse 10 says, My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. But not only there, let's also look at uh, Psalms 84, verse 9. Which says, Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. Right? So, let's continue on. The word goes on, right? He says, and thy exceeding great reward. Now, remember, last week we talked about Abram refusing to take the rewards, right, that, were, that had been offered to him. The reward for, for going after those kings and bringing back the people and the things that they had taken. Even though he turned it down, he did not lose out, did he? The Lord, he rewards him in a way that is much greater and better than what, what they could have hoped, that they could have ever offered him. God is his reward. And that is a great reward, isn't it? Even exceedingly great. 
Just look at how, how Christ is to his people. Anyway, God comes to Abram in those visions because Abram must have been a, about to, to just give up. Give up on everything that, you know, everything that he must have thought like, I'm not going to have a family. And the promise of God coming, tr coming true. Now, notice how the first thing that God says to Abram is, fear not. This is the same thing that he tells you and me today. Fear not. Believe it or not, fear is not faith. Fear is the exact opposite of faith. And look what he tells Abram. He essentially says, I didn't say that you could do this by yourself. God said, I am the protector. This thing that I will give to you is not of your own doing. It is a reward to you because you believe in me for no other reason. Amen. So let's look at um, verse 2 now. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. Notice that he says to God, I go childless. This, of course, is in response to, to the encouragement and the, ad, ad, the admonition, right, that God gave him in the previous verse. In doing this, Abram is showing God what was wrong with him. Right? He's asking God essentially, how can you promise me so many descendants and that I will be a, you know, a great nation when I have no child? Notice that he mentions this Eliezer of Damascus. As far as Abram could see, the promise of God had stalled. And to Abram, he saw his best bet was to, to adopt a servant as his male heir. This was a, a um, actually, believe it or not, it was a well-known custom in, Macedon in uh, Mesopotamia. You see, it had been 10 years, and he still had no heir. So he suggests this custom that, uh, that was around in his time, this adoption of his steward named Eliezer of Damascus. Right? But of course, as you know, God refuses because he clearly promised Abram that, that he would have a child. And he says, out of thine own bowels. This means physical, pro, uh, physical procreation, of course. In the next verse, we see, him, we see this question. And that question is, what will you give me? But it turns into an accusation. You have given no offspring to me. Then in verse 4, we see God outright just reject Abram's solution. And then, of course, God reiterates his promise of an innumerable descendant. And he speaks, uh, and speaking of that, let's look at Romans chapter 4, verse 18. I'm going to use the online uh, Bible for this one because... It would take, like I said, it takes me so long to look up a, a verse for you guys.
and it just slows us down, doesn't it? So Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken? So shall thy seed be. Okay, now let's look at verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and, lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Abram is saying that despite the, the grandeur of how precious that promise is, or the assurance, I should say, Abram still had no child. Not only did he not have a child, he didn't even have any land. As far as he could see, God had done nothing in regard to the things that he promised. And he tells God, to me, thou hast given no seed. This is something that is, to me, is strikingly human about what we see. You see, Abram is not some enthusiast. He's not a fanatic. He holds strong to the blessings that God has named. And he's telling God that, hey, you promised me children and I don't have any. Isn't that what he's saying? Think about it. If God had given Abram all the land and no children, what would be the point? Because when Abram would die, no one would have it. So, he saw this servant as the next best thing. You know, I can give it to him. And what we see Abram feeling here, and what we see here is Abram feeling sorry for himself. He's having a pity party. You know, a pity party with a with a uh, a guest list of one, right? So let's go on. Let's look at verse four. And behold. The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now, I do not think it is ever a good idea to complain about God, but it's always a good idea to complain to God, okay? To, to lay out all of your grievances on him. Just think about it. Think about how good it feels when you go and you open up to a friend. You know, when something's bothering you, you can go to your friend and just and just tell them everything. God's the best friend you can ever have. Abram is complaining about the fact that he doesn't have children. Also, he's complaining about the fact that he doesn't think he ever will. He wanted a son, and he wanted one so much that it hurt. He couldn't find comfort anywhere. Now, if you were the only, if you were to only see that Abraham was looking at the outward world, that would be because of this complaint. But when you look at the fact that Abram was looking at the promise, the promise of this seed. 
then you can see that he was he was commendable, right? Sorry, my computer is like being real slow. You can see that you can see the parallels, I should say, with our own life as a Christian. Until we see evidence of your interest in Christ, you should not rest satisfied. You should not rest satisfied. Think about it. What will avail you if you go Christless? If you continue in, in instant prayer, yet you pray with humble submission to the divine will of God, you will not be looking in vain. Look at Abram here. God gave Abram the promise of a son, right? God sees your broken heart. He, he encourages you. Again, look at Abram. He corrects Abram's gloominess. He again, what does he do? He reassures Abram that he has that promise. Let's, let's continue on. You'll see. Let's look at verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Do you see how God, he reiterates that promise, the promise that he made about the seed. Remember how before he commanded Abram to look at the land, to, to use the dust as a symbol of how many, the multitudes that would spring out of him. And here we see him use the stars. And he challenges Abram, number them. Tell me how many there are. Saying that if he could do that, so shall his seed be. God made everything around us. And he made it all out of nothing. All he did was speak. He can fulfill any promise that he makes. And he will multiply the seed of Abram and Sarai. We can tell from that, that, that visitation here that it, this is not in, you know, that it will, nothing will interfere with the notice of the sensible world. Take a look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 7. I'm going to be using the online, the online Bible again. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Let's look at John chapter 12, verse 29. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that the thundering others said an angel spoke to him. Now, there's one thing that I do want to point out. And, and yes, I hear you. Didn't he tell him to count? But the word is tell. That's because that is what the word tell means. 
The word tell literally means to count. That's where we get teller. God already promised Abram an innumerable amount of descendants. He's showing him a visual representation. Abram saw, in, in a spiritual sense, all the stars in heaven. And even scientists today will tell you that those are innumerable. There's no way to, to count those all those stars. Let's look at verse 6 now. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. It says that he believed, that he counted for righteousness. These exact words are later quoted by the Apostle Paul as an illustration, if you will, of faith over works in several places. Let's go, uh, let's go look at some of them real quick. Like I said, I'm going to be using the Internet Bible here. Since I'm misplaced my phone. For what saith the scripture? Abram believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, just a few verses later, we're going to look at verse 9. Cometh this blessedness that upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Right? Now, let's look again at a few verses later at verse 22. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness again these are all because of faith right now let's look at galatians chapter 3 verse 6 even as abraham believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness okay James chapter 2 verse 23 And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God so, so we can tell that Abraham or Abram <laughs> was justified by faith, right? The verse tells us that he believed in the Lord. Now, do not get me wrong. I am in no way saying that this was Abram's first act of faith. Far from it. It's just further evidence of his confidence in God. If you were to look at this in light of what we read in Hebrews chapter 8, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8, 9, and 10. Let's look at those real quick. It says, By faith 
when he was called to go out into a place which he should have after received in an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builders, whose builder and maker is God. You see, when you look at it in that light, you can clearly see that Abram had, had already experienced saving faith at the time of his calling. Now, if you look at verses like um, Romans chapter 4, verse 6, and, and, and all, as well as verse 22, let's go look at those real quick. We'll look at Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the men unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And then verse 22. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. We see right there, we see instances of God doing what? Imputing righteousness to the account of those who, who already believe. Not only that, but in Romans chapter 4 verse 18, we see a reference that uh, Abram believed God's promise that he would have a posterity. Let's take a look at that. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be you know like I said he, he believes in that promise so we can see the doctrine of imputation is based on our faith the mere fact that Abram was justified for 14 years before he was ever even circumcised, is the basis of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Go read them. Let's read them together. Cometh the blessedness that upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham by righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all that all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of their father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised, right? 
So, faith, not works, which we can see circumcision as an example of. You see, faith is the means of our justification. Think about that. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, both teaches us that salvation is by faith and not by works. Isn't that interesting? Look at the verse again. It does not say that Abram believed what God said. No. It says that Abram believed in the Lord. Notice that the word Lord is all capital. Every letter of that word. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Which, if you've been following me long enough, you already know that when it's all caps like that, this was the Hebrews censoring the name of God so that they do not risk saying it in vain. You see, Abram, for Abram to be the father of all the believers, he also had to be a believer himself. As we discussed earlier, I think that the encounter between Abram and Melchizedek was recognition of the Lord Jesus Christ. His belief in the Lord made him righteous. Okay, let's look at verse 7 again. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees, to give thee this land to inherit it. Notice what God says to him. To give thee this land to inherit it. The very fact that a specific land is, in, is identified here is linked with the Abram having many, 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 many descendants, <laughs> amen, in God's covenant with Abraham. In a formal ceremony, it would be beyond dispute. Here we see him telling Abram that he did not leave Ur of the Chaldees just to find a better place to make a living. No, 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 no. God brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees so that he could give Abram the land as an inheritance. All right, verse 8 now. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? He's asking God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? This is not some accusation. I saw where a lot of people said that it was. This is a question, just a general request for information and assurance, okay? We see that God, in response to this question, he affirms his covenant with Abram in a for lack of a better word, remarkable ceremony. You know how sometimes so many of us, you know, hear God's voice and we say, hey, how do I know that that's him? Abraham does the same thing. All right, we're going to look at two verses now. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And he said to him, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. 
Look what God did. It says that he divided them in the midst. Now, back in the ancient world, okay, when you would make a covenant with someone, you would cut an animal in half. That way, the two parties in the covenant, you know, could walk between them. And the reason that this was done was a way of saying, this is what will happen if we break this covenant. Take a look at Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 to 19. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf. Okay, that's what this is talking about here. We also see a sign uh, of this in the Mari tablets. If you go look those up, you can, you can read about that. Anyway, just take a notice. Only God passes between the pieces in the form of a smoking furnace. That, that torch-like flames, you know, shot out of it. Now, keeping this in mind, I want you to, again, take a look at another verse with me. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Mount Sinai was altogether on a on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. Why is this done? Right? That's what you're asking. That would be because this is a covenant that God is making with Abram. It is an, uncondition, an unconditional covenant. And because of that, only God could carry it out. The fact that the animals are three years old is kind of interesting, though. This could be symbolic of Jesus' ministry on earth, because it was three years. Or it could be just a way of letting us know that, hey, the animals reached maturity. And that it was something of value that, that could be sacrificed. Now, did you notice that it says that he did not divide the birds? Again, this could be symbolic. Speaking of the unity that the Holy Ghost, which is often depicted as a dove, brings to believers. Most animals and some birds would later become sacrifices for sin. So, remember, the covenant of a lasting value included shed blood the shed blood would seal the covenant let's look at verse 11 now and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses abram drove them away it starts off with and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses 
Now, the birds that we're reading about here are pretty obviously, you know, birds of prey. Because they came down on the carcasses. What they were trying to do was they were trying to eat it. Abram, he stood there beside the carcasses waiting for God to manifest. Because he was the one who ordered the sacrifice. So, so that he could, you know, ratify the covenant. So here Abraham is, he's shooing these birds away. He did not want them to pollute the sacrifice or to eat it, right? It had been consecrated by God. I believe they were there to eat the carcasses because of what I read, you know, by Aben Ezra and also Ben Melech, who, who said that they were birds like eagles or vultures, kites, crows, or some other bird of prey. Another thing to think about is how Egypt and other enemies of Israel were often compared to these types of birds. How Egypt and, like I said, they're, they're, they came to devour, right? I will show you with a verse from the Targum of Jonathan. It says, And the idolatrous nations descended who were like to an unclean fowl, to spoil the goods of the Israelites. Now, here's what, here's one from the Targum of Je Jerusalem. It says, This unclean fowl are the idolatrous kingdoms of the earth. Here in our verse, we're seeing the symbolism really taking hold. We see these vultures. They're coming down. They're trying to take away the offering that was made to God. Just like how the devil is descending on the Jews, believers of Christ today but you see the covenant that god made with abram still wards him off our faith just like abram's faith sends the devil flying away even today all right let's see what verse 12 has to say and when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon abram and lo a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Notice that it says that God, you know, what we're seeing here is God puts Abram to sleep. Remember, the covenant doesn't involve Abram. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to walk through the pieces. Now, I do want to talk about one part of this verse. And that's how we see this darkness fall on him. Even in modern day, science tells us that darkness means the absence of light. When we read how this darkness fell, this would mean that there would have been a falling away of the descendants of Abram. A curse would fall. Just like how we can read about this happening in the Dark Ages. At that time of the Dark Ages... The faith in God was very weak. Now, moving forward, we're going to read the words of God in the covenant ceremony. How, how they assure Abram that he and his descendants would be in the land. But that a painful detour into Egypt, doesn't say Egypt by name, but a detour into Egypt would delay the fulfillment. But before we do that, let's look at Acts chapter 7, verses 6 and 7.
And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. Let's look at verse 13 now. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. That's right. God tells Abram, they shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. This prophecy, this is a prophecy here. And this is the prophecy that Israel would be in Egypt. This would be predicted to take place for 300 years. Well, this <laughs> it takes place 300 years later. And that it would last for 400 years, right? Let's look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. You know why that happened? That happened because Moses tried to act too fast. But we're not here to talk about that today. Um, so let's move on. Verse 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. Notice that God says that he will judge that nation. Of course, we know that this is Egypt, right? We see all that. If you want to go read it later, it's in Exodus chapter 15. God says that he will bring Egypt out with great substance, which again, we can read about this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 34, 35, and 36. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their knee-throughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels and silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. He also would use them as a way to uh, judge the inhabitants of Canaan as well. When the iniquity of the Amorites would be full. We're seeing God give Abram the, the knowledge about his descendants. About what will happen to them in Egypt. That they would be the Pharaoh's land for 400 years. But he tells him <coughs> that he would bring them out and he would punish the country for how the country mistreated his people. And that, that they would spoil the Egyptians and that they would you know, bring out great wealth. Later on, what we'll be learning about how 70 people go into Egypt 
three million, <laughs> amen, come out. Let's look at verse 15 now. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. He's telling Abraham, thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. It always surprises me that people think that the Old Testament did not teach that there was an afterlife and that Jews do not believe in the afterlife. This verse right here exists. This verse right here implies immortality of the spirit. Does it not? It also implies a separate state of existence. Him being gathered to his fathers. This tells us that there's a place where your spirit is taken and kept, waiting the resurrection. There are two things to notice here. First off, you know, the spirit of Abram would be introduced among the assembly of the firstborn. We see it when it says, Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Okay? And then his body should be buried after a long life. We know that this is 175 years. We read about that uh, when we get to it. Uh, let's go ahead and look that up. Genesis chapter 25, verse 7. And these are the days of the years of Abram's life, Abraham's life, which he lived, a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. The body was buried. The spirit went on to the spiritual world where he would dwell where? Among the fathers, which are the patriarchs, the ones who lived and died in the Lord. Verse 15 makes it pretty clear what happens when we die. Does it not? There is a separation between our body and our spirit. He tells him that he will be at, at, a, at peace with his ancestors. Meaning that our spirit will leave the body, will go into heaven, if you're a Christian. And God tells him that his body will rest in the grave until the day of resurrection. Let's look at verse 16 now. But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. This tells us that there was a delay, a delay in the, the, in the covenant between it being fulfilled because there's a delay in the judgment. We know that the judgment on Egypt would mark the departure of, of Abraham's descendants from their their you know for, for their own land for them to go home and the descendants entered their land and that would mark the judgment on Canaanites the ones who who defined ethnicity as Amorites God had given these these Amorites he gave them a plenty of chance to repent but they didn't 
And a generation in this verse is speaking of a hundred years. Let's look at verse 17 now. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between these pieces. Remember earlier I mentioned how, how God went between the pieces like a furnace. Here it is. It's right here. This verse says smoking furnace, burning lamp. With that in mind, again, I want to call you back to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Sorry, I'm having to use this uh, internet Bible. It's just a little bit more difficult because I literally have to go over and click, 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 click. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. These items almost always, always symbolize God. God promote God promised, I should say, a divine oath that he would fulfill the promise that he made to Abram. That's why he passes through the animal pieces himself and not Abram with him. Because if, if this would have been a, a, a covenant between two people, they both would have to pass. All right, verse 18 now. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. He's telling Abram that his offspring would have all this land between those two rivers. He says the river of Egypt unto the Euphrates. The Bible records two descriptions of the promised land. A, a general description and a specific description. We can see the general description in several verses. We'll take a look at them real quick. Again, I'm using this internet Bible, so if it takes me just a couple seconds, it's taking me a lot sooner than it would if I was using, like, flipping through the Bible myself here. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32. I'm sorry. Exodus chapter 23, verse 31. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and they shall drive them out before thee. Numbers chapter 13 verse 21. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob as men came to Hamath. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 24. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours from the wilderness of Lebanon from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea, shall you, your coast be. 
1 Kings 8.65 And at that time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel was with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt, before the Lord out before the Lord our God, seven days and seven days, even fourteen days. Second Kings fourteen twenty five. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the Sea of the Plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. Now Isaiah 27.12 And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the st stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered by one by one, O ye children of Israel. And then you have the specific description of the promised land in several verses as well. You have... Um, Numbers chapter 34 verses 1 to 12, which we're not going to read all that. That's way too much to read here right now. And then we have, um, what's this one here? Having to clarify this one. Joshua chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah. By their families, even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin, southward was the uttermost part of the south coast, and their south border was from the shore of the salt sea, from the bay that looketh southward. Then we have Ezekiel chapter fifteen, or Ezekiel chapter forty-seven, verses fifteen to twenty, which you're more than welcome to go read if you want to. Uh, then also chapter 48, verses 1, as well as verse 28. These, of course, they center on the land of Canaan. You see, with this verse here, it gives us such specific geographic location that it prevents anyone from saying, hey, God was not specific. I think that where it says right there, the river of Egypt, is most likely the Wadi El Arish. This is the southern border of Judah. Now, have you ever noticed that the Bible calls God a consuming fire? This presence of smoke and fire was God appearing to make his covenant with Abram. Remember, we already discussed that, that blood had to be shed to seal a covenant. So, what was Abram's part of this? All Abram had to do was believe. He had to believe that God would keep that covenant. Now notice how here in verse 18, we see God draw the lines, the lines of where the land will go for Abram's descendants. Even though they will not receive it, 
until much later. And sadly, when you look at Israel today, Israel is still fighting for that same land, that land that rightfully belongs to them. Now, notice as we move forward, we see the Canaanites, we see the Jebusites, and these are the various people that inhabited the land. Again, this is precise detail of the nations that were in that land. And it shows us that the lands that, that are specific to the land that God promises. Verse 19. The Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Kadamites. There they are. <laughs> These people. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadamites. Now, these people are named here. And we, of course, see some, a lot more people later, right? Ten of them, to be exact. I point this out here because, you see, in the time of Moses and Joshua, we only see seven. These three here in verse 19 are never named among them. So, doing a little research, I found where middle-aged Jewish philosopher Eben Ezra believed that these people must have had two names. Jarki says that they were most likely the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And we read about them in Isaiah and they would be the inheritance of the children of Israel in the future. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 14. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west... They shall spoil them in the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. Then there are some scholars, right, who believe that the Kenites are the Midianites. Because remember, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he was from Midian, and he's called the Kenite. So was Heber, who, who was of the same race of people. Uh, look at Judges 1.16. And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lieth in the south of Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. During the time of Balaam, there were Kenites, who, who were near the Amalekites, and they dwelt among them during the time of Saul, and we see that in Numbers chapter 24, verse 20. And when he looked at Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek, 
was the first of the nations, but his later end shall be that he perish forever. Okay. Let's look at chapter uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 20. And the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims. Now, and the Hittites, right? They got their names from where? From Heth, right? Heth was a son of Canaan. And we've seen that back in chapter 10, verse 15. And Canaan begat Sidon his firstborn and Heth, right? Now, the Hittites, they lived around Hebron, which is in the south of Canaan. Then we see named the Perizzites. Now, the Perizzites, they lived in the wooded country. And we read about them in Joshua chapter 17, verse 15. And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wooded country, and cut down for thyself. There in the land of the Perizzites, and of the giants in Mount Ephraim, be too narrow for thee. They got their name because they dwelt in villages, right? And they, and they also, and not only in villages, but a distance from the towns and the, and the cities. They were very boorish very uncivilized take a look at genesis chapter 13 verse 7 and there was a strife between the herdmen of abram's cattle and the herdmen of lot's cattle and the canaanite and the parasites dwelled then in the land Then we see, and the Rephames. These Rephames here, we see them called giants in the Targum of Ankelos, as well as Jonathan. They seem to have lived near the Perizzites. And we read about this in Joshua chapter 17, verse 15. And also in, uh, in another verse we'll look at here in a second. Uh, Joshua 17, 15 says, And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, go thee to the wooded country, cut down thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants in Mount Ephraim. You see, it, it, they're, they're often referred to as giants. Um, take, also take a look at Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. So these men must have been very big. Genesis 14.5 In the fourteenth year came Shedraimer and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaims and Ashtaroth, Karanaim, and the Zuzims and Ham and the Amines and Shava Kira. I can't pronounce those names. <laughs> Alright. Here we are with the last verse in the chapter. 
verse 21, and it reads, And the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, and the Amorites, these are the same Amorites as the Amorite that we read back in uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse 16. And the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Gergesites, right? This tells us that they inhabited both this side and the other side of Jordan, right? Then it says, and the Canaanites. These Canaanites here were the, were a, these aren't like the groups. This is a particular tribe that had the name of their ancestor Canaan. And they took it here in, uh, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 7. And these were the strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelled in in the land. The verse goes on to say, and the Gergesites. Now, these people have been, they, they seem to be the same people as the Gergesenes that we see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, And when he come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And also in Genesis chapter 10, verse 16, And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Gergesite, right? Then we see, and the Jebusites. These people, they inhabited Jerusalem and around it. And I think that we discussed that this when we were doing Judges. But they were, the, they were first called just Jebus, which they got from their founder. Uh, and we can read about him in Genesis chapter 10, verse 16, which we just read. But let's look at it again. And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Gergus. So, like I said, there are ten groups of people mentioned. We see also that this is God dealing against the uh, governments of the world. These people mentioned here, they do not follow God. And because of that, God would take their lands away from them and give it to the descendants of Abram. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt to the land that was promised to them. So, um, that'll be it for today. Um, again, I want to just say Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. Um, I pray that, you know, you've, you've spent time with your families. You've, um, you've enjoyed the holiday as much as you can with the storms going, sweeping across the country. Um, and for those of you who didn't get to see your family, I hope you at least called them. Um, and let them know that, you know, you care and you love them. Um, 
you know, spend time with, do your best, spend time with your family. I know, guys, you don't always get along with your family, but they're still your family, and you should, you should do your best to get along with them and love them and show them that you love them. You know, even if it's something as simple as helping them with a problem that they're having. You know, because sometimes just showing that, hey, I'm here for you or I'm willing to help you in some small way, it means a lot to someone. You never know what someone's going through. Um, so, Merry Christmas. May God bless you and keep you. And I hope you all see you all back here again soon. I love each and every one of you. Oh, thank you.